everybody. Welcome to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse. And I'm Michelle. Today we are wishing a happy birthday to Florence Foster Jenkins, whose birthday was yesterday, July 19th. And we're going to talk a little bit about her life and the movie that was made a couple years back. And just kind of get into what kind of performer was she? How much did the movie get right or wrong? And like, what can we learn from one of the most notorious Sopranos of all time? (laughs) Truly. (laughs) But before we jump into that, we have an announcement. And our announcement is yes, Giorgio. Heck yes. Heck yes. I'm so excited. It's finally coming up this Saturday. We've been talking about it for a while. All excited about it coming up. And it's happening this Saturday, July 24th at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. And it's going to be a ball. It's hosted on our Discord for free. If you haven't joined us on Discord, that's where we host all of our free virtual events, our game nights, our watch parties, you know, our 30-day challenges, all that good stuff. And just general discussion lives on our Discord. And if you're not familiar with Discord, you can think of it as like the fun version, like the fun cousin of Slack. It's just a chat room. It's really fun. You can share videos. That's where a lot of our opera community lives, and that's where we all talk. So join us on there. The way to join is by clicking the link in bio on our Instagram, which is at Opera Offstage. So I'm super excited to watch Pavarotti in this cult classic. So we hope to see you there. And a big thank you to everyone who showed up for our game night this past weekend. We had a really fun time with you guys. We played a lot of games, and it was just a. It was nice. It was nice to hang out with people again. Oh, it was so much fun. It was so good seeing everybody. Thanks to everybody who stopped by. So today we are highlighting the fabulous, the irreplaceable <laughs> Florence Foster Jenkins. You know, this lady holds a special place in my heart because she was a queen in her own right. And you know, it's really funny. If you guys didn't know, Opera Off Stage, we actually have a Patreon page where we, you know, have a bunch of goodies for you guys. Our $2 level, all of our tiers are separated by different influential women in the music sphere. And Floris Monster Jenkins is our little like patron saint of the $2 level tier. And I remember when we were creating that, Jesse and I were like, okay, who are we going to pick? And we were like, we got to go with our girl Florence Foster Jenkins. So we're excited to honor her today. If this is the first time you're hearing about Miss Florence, then man, are you in for a treat? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, that was the funny thing about Florence Foster Jenkins is like she was really well known in classical music circles. Like I, I think actually the first person to play me a recording of Florence Foster Jenkins was Preston who now is one of our writers. Yeah. So if you've read any of our blogs, you've probably read some of Preston's work. Preston has shown me many strange and wonderful musical things because he's also responsible for introducing me to that 15 minutes of Cher doing all the roles in West Side Story. Oh, glorious. <laughs> yes. How can we forget Which about is that? also amazing. <laughs> I'll throw that into the Discord because everyone should see it and it's one of my favorite things. But I like it was pretty well known among musicians, but not so much until they made an entire movie about it. Yeah, she's definitely become more popular, I guess, in recent years. A lot of um, like two movies, two documentaries have come out in the past like five years about her. And so she is a very interesting figure. So if this is the first time you're hearing about her, we'll do a quick rundown for you. So she was born into a pretty wealthy family, and Foster said her lifelong passion for public performance began when she was seven years old. We later learned that Florence Foster Jenkins is known for being an American socialite, and a socialite she very much was, and, you know, in kind words, an amateur soprano. Yeah. (laughs) 
Diving into music as a child, she was actually a very talented pianist, and very few people dispute this about her. She performed at society functions, going by the little stage name as Little Miss Foster, which I think is the cutest thing in the whole world. I will now be referring to you as Little Miss Michelle. Ooh! <laughs> we love to see it. I don't know why. Going to see, like, a little seven-year-old who's, like, actually got musical chops, and, like, the headliner is Little Miss Foster, just gives me the absolute best feelings and vibes. But she even went on to give a recital at the White House during the administration of President Hayes, which to me is like wild. It's a wild thing to think about because the the general idea is that she has no sense of musicality. Yeah, no sense. We'll get into it, but... But she was very good at the piano, which is really funny. And just to give some context, we're looking at Florence Foster Jenkins being born around 1868 and then dying in 1944. So that's kind of the time frame we're looking at. You know, she's actually getting a little bit of a piano career. And after graduating high school, she has this fixation on wanting to go study music in Europe, And unfortunately, her dreams of studying music abroad are totally dashed when her father refuses his permission and perhaps more importantly, the funding to do so. So at 17, Florence elopes with Frank Thornton Jenkins, who was a physician 16 years older than her and they married in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, this marriage does not go so well because the following year, Florence Foster Jenkins realizes that she actually contracted syphilis from her husband, and she ended that relation right quick. Worst possible wedding gift. Truly, like, and he's a physician, so, like, something makes me feel like that's, like, extra wrong. (laughs) Yeah, like, the man knew. Yeah, and so it's like, hmm, I don't know about this man. He's real sketchy in my book. But, you know, she rightfully ends their relationship um, because that's something you probably want to know going into a marriage. And reportedly, she never spoke to him or of him again. They, Yeah, they didn't, like, formally end their marriage, though. No, I mean, supposedly she was granted a divorce decree, but no documentation has ever been actually found. So it's kind of hearsay. But she kept his last name yeah. for the rest of her life. So, I don't know. I mean, it's a good stage name. Weird so. choice, I guess. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Florence Foster also works. Yeah, but I feel like something about the Jenkins adds the spice. So it just carries it over the top. Totally. You need a three name. Exactly. Even though she got rid of her first name, the irony of which is not lost on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... You know, you're probably thinking like, all right, she got syphilis. That sucks. She ditches her husband. What about her piano career? Well, unfortunately, she suffers an arm injury and that pretty much ends her kind of dreams of becoming a pianist. So she actually goes on to give piano lessons to support herself. And around 1900, she moves to New York City with her mother, which is huge. You know, when she rises to her unique level of fame, she's known to be in New York City. So she actually ends up marrying a second man, or I guess informally marrying, cohabiting with this guy, an actor. Common law husband. Sure. uh, St. Clair Bayfield. And a year after they end up staying together, uh, her father dies. And this is actually really important in her life because she then becomes a beneficiary of a pretty nice trust. And this is the this is the ticket she's kind of been waiting for. And so as soon as she's granted that money, she's like, all right, game on. Bayfield, you know, this man is going to be my manager and I am going to try and pick up this music career again. So she started taking voice lessons. And this is where I think the power of just her 
like social senses really shines. She joins a ton of different social clubs and becomes the chairman of music for a ton of music organizations that she throws. And of course, you know, she like casts herself and and does little recitals at these little kind of dinner parties that she throws. And something that Florence Foster Jenkins was known for was wearing these crazy, elaborate, very expensive kind of outlandish costumes that she designed. Yeah. You Google her, you are sure to see a picture of her in this like gown that has um, like angel wings. You know, now that I think about it, Florence Foster Jenkins kind of has like Mariah Carey vibes. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe you've done this, but you are correct. (laughs) I think also too, like it's, it's unrecognized the fact like a lot of people talk about her singing, but she also, she designed her costumes. She wrote the words to some of the songs she sang, and Mick Moon, who was her her pianist and coach for much of her career, wrote the music for it. Like, she did a lot. Mm-hmm. She did a lot, a lot. And then she also wrote, ran the Verity Club. The funny thing about the whole Verity Club thing is, like, a lot of people kind of presume that it's just her way of getting to perform. But that club, even though it's kind of hard to find the documentation, is actually really well noted for its generosity towards helping young American singers. Yeah, that's something really important to know about her is that she did a lot for up-and-coming singers. You know, she was also really dedicated to, and I quote, fostering a love and patronage of grand opera in English. So we love a queen who does it all. Yeah, she's literally doing what we're trying to do. Exactly, so that's why we love her so much. You know, it's important to note that the Verdi Club actually had like over 400 members, including Enrico Caruso. So like big people. Yeah, he was an honorary member. So whether he knew he was a member of the club or not, debatable. Very true. Although it is reported that he regardless regarded her with affection and respect. And I think the thing to know is that Florence Foster Jenkins, while her singing abilities are not the best, She definitely had this very fascinating ability to appeal to a wide variety of people, even if they just kind of went to taunt her. Like, she just had this inexplicable draw. So, you know, she's founding all these things left and right. She's joining all of these social clubs. And in 1930, Jenkins' mother dies. You know, she has access to even more money. And that's when she really kind of is able to expand and further promote her singing career because you know she started giving vocal recitals when she was 44 years old so wild yeah i think it's fun it is so that's a little a short overview of kind of you know the leading up to her career so to speak so a couple famous people just for kicks and giggles who came to her concerts include cole porter and The funny thing about Cole Porter is, you know, there's this impresario named Ira Sif, and she dubs Florence Foster Jenkins the anti-Kalos, which is pretty rough. And she says that they say Cole Porter had to bang his cane into his foot in order not to laugh out loud when she sang she was that bad. Nevertheless, Porter rarely missed a recital. So she really kind of had this cult following, if you will. Uh, Giancarlo Manotti, Kitty Carlisle, Lily Pons was another person who was often seen at her recitals, um, Sir Thomas Beecham, and then, of course, reportedly Enrico Caruso. So you can see she's actually getting some pretty big people coming to her concerts, regardless of what they think of her vocal capabilities. Yeah. 
No, I mean, she was well, she was in many ways well liked. Like, one of the things she was known for doing is she would have her friends gather in her home and she would play her records alongside the records of very famous musicians, very famous <laughs> operatic sopranos, and she would have them vote on which one they thought was best. And if you've ever heard of a recording of Florence Foster Jenkins, you know that it was not hard to figure out which was hers. And very often the people would all write that they liked hers best. Like for all <laughs> the sense of it being a joke, people genuinely had no desire to stop her from doing it. Right, exactly. You know, that same era Sif who called her the anti-Kalos said Jenkins was exquisitely bad, so bad that it added up to uh, quite a good evening of theater. So, you know. Well, what's hilarious is a lot of people didn't like Kalos at the time. Yeah, exactly. So she was dealing with a lot of backlash for the wobble in her voice. Like there. Yeah. So these people were not nice to anyone, to be clear. Mm -hmm. They can call her the anti-Kalos, but they didn't like Kalos either. Exactly. (laughs) So jokes on you. <laughs> Joke, jokes on you. But she she is this just like strange and wonderful figure, which is why probably people were so inspired to write a movie about her. And when I first heard about the movie coming out, I remember being kind of nervous because it was after listening to her that I had read up on her and learned that she had syphilis and that syphilis can obviously do really radical things to your mind over the course of 60 some odd years. And I was worried that this movie would be, like, wildly cruel to this woman. The thing about it is, like, a lot of people view her the way they view people when they watch those American Idol auditions. You know, the first round. Yeah. Where American Idol just takes people who clearly don't know that they can't sing and then does, like, a super cut of them and mocks them. Mm -hmm. Because that's what entertainment likes to do a lot. Yeah. (laughs) It's an awful thing. The early 2000s were a cruel and unforgiving time. (laughs) But the movie is actually, like, both very honest and quite kind to Florence Foster Jenkins and quite kind to Bayfield. Because a lot of people assumed that her husband, the actor, was just with her for the money. But the movie very much paints him as, like, a much more compassionate person than that. And it may have been a mixture of those things. But the movie... If you compare the movie to the actual facts of the story, I would say all the major beats are correct. Whether the smaller details are invented, probably. You can't fill out everything just from, you know, writings about her. But, you know, her syphilis, her dramatics, the concert, the reviews, I would say all of the major beats of her story are correct. So kudos to the movie. It's very cute. Go watch it. It's a lot of fun to watch. And obviously it has our girl Meryl Streep, so. Meryl Streep kills it. And her imitation of the singing, because she does the singing herself, uh, is very good. <laughs> it's quite good. <laughs> but there are like two two things that the movie kind of gets wrong. Number one, in the movie, they kind of attribute her inability to play the piano to her syphilis instead of like a specific injury. They kind of say that it's a nerve issue, which is very minor. But the real the real thing that's like a big romantic idea as opposed to probably the reality she did die shortly after she gave her sold-out Carnegie Hall performance, but they kind of painted up to be, like, a broken heart from all of the bad reviews, hmm. which, like, is a is a much more interesting idea than what we'll get to in just a second. But before I jump into why she probably passed, I want to talk a little bit about the sold-out Carnegie Hall concert. First of all, can you even just imagine selling out Carnegie Hall? Imagine selling out Carnegie Hall. Like, well and truly. But not only did she sell out Carnegie Hall, she sold it out in two hours. Yo, what a legend. (laughs) An absolute legend. Like, there were people trying to sell, like, people really well and truly were turned away at the door. Like, there were scalpers trying to sell tickets 
to this, like even on the day of, like it was a huge event. And her program from that day is still one of the most requested like programs from the archives. That's the what people want to see. They want to see her program, not Judy Garland, not the Beatles, not Maria Callas, not anybody. They want to see hers because that's what they want to know. What what was she performing? What was she doing? And it was funny because we were looking at it before this. And it is it is like a it is an impressive program. <laughs> she had Russian in there. She had a couple of sp- Spanish pieces. She had a, like she had, I think, one piece that she wrote herself. Like there was so much happening in there. We love to see it. Mad respect for including Russian in, in her recital. Truly. Like, it is it is absolutely wild. As you can imagine, a lot of people were laughing. A lot of people were laughing. This was the largest concert she had ever given. And while her friends would largely cover the laughter and the jeering in smaller venues, they couldn't really cover it up in Carnegie Hall, where you have over a thousand seats. Despite that, she sang the whole concert. It did not stop her. But a lot of people like to attribute her death to the bad reviews. But here's the thing. She had had syphilis for almost 60 years. And I'll just, without looking at our little document, what do you think they treat syphilis with back then? Well, they didn't treat anything back then without some crazy (laughs) freaking drugs. So I'm going to assume it's really bad. Everyone's just straight up downing (laughs) cocaine for their coughs. Pretty much. No, they would treat it with mercury and arsenic. Ah, yes. Holistic ingredients. (laughs) (laughs) Really... Like, that's what all the health gurus are pushing today. Uh, Everyone's got their little thing of mercury and arsenic. I like to pick mine up from Whole Foods or a farmer's market if I'm feeling like extra it. bougie. I like my arsenic organic. Yeah. <laughs> Certified USDA. Yeah, I, non-GMO Mm-mm. arsenic, please. It's the only way to do it. <laughs> but she was also 76. Like, she was also not old, old, but she was pretty old. Especially for having lived with syphilis for 60 years and just downing arsenic <laughs> on the reg. People also used to wash their faces with arsenic is what I learned. Honestly? It used to be a face wash too. Now, around this time, they do discover penicillin, which is the treatment for syphilis. However, she was actually in like third stage, what's called tertiary syphilis, where it starts to deteriorate your nervous system. And it starts to affect your mind and your heart. And I don't mean that euphemistically, like her literal heart. Okay, but truly, if you were looking for any reason to just be impressed by this woman, the fact that she had battled syphilis for 60 years, I didn't even know that you could survive that for that long. Oh, yeah. And like the fact that like she had any sort of like composure, because a lot of people, you know, syphilitic madness was not uncommon. Like there's a lot of historical records of There are a lot of people who think things that were mistaken for, like, demon possession and all of this other stuff during, like, medieval times and all of that were, like, actually syphilis and things that would deteriorate your mental state. So the fact that she did so well at all is kind of impressive. And not only that, you know, she was also... Another thing that the movie does show you and something I didn't know was that she was bald. She was completely bald from the treatments. Mm. Yeah. But also, like, she did her Carnegie Hall debut at 76. Like, that's wild. That's crazy. Which also, I just looked it up because I was curious to know how many seats Carnegie has. Because I, I knew it was like over 2,000. It's actually 3,000. Yeah. 671 seats. I think that w- one of their halls is like 2,600. And then there are two more halls that add it to make it over 3,000. Ah. Oh, divided among three auditoriums. Yeah. I was like, can you even imagine? 
That's why. But even then, o- over 2,000 people like staring you down. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The STEM auditorium, which is their, their big one yeah. or two-tiered one, is 2,804. Yeah, there you go. I can't even visualize in my mind. <laughs> like So Francesconi, who is one of the archivalists for Carnegie Hall, who was mentioning that she was taking mercury and arsenic and that's probably what killed her and syphilis because all of those things will eventually kill you but one of the things he mentioned is the interesting thing is that some critics just devastated her and said like this is the worst joke ever perpetrated on a new york audience but another critic said yeah and she made four thousand dollars on that recital so the joke is on us Which is like a lot. I think that's how a lot of us feel about it. It's like, yeah, maybe she was a laughing stock to these people, but she made money off of it, and people wanted to see her more than they wanted to see most musicians at the time. Jesse, can you tell us what four thousand dollars back then would be in today's money? Yeah, translated, that's sixty thousand twenty twenty one dollars. <laughs> can you imagine being seventy six, selling out Carnegie Hall in two freaking hours? And walking away with 60 grand because I can. That's my dream. <laughs> right? And and that's just like the, I guess the wildest part about it is she's got a very famous quote. She said, people may say I can't sing, but no one can ever say I didn't sing. Ugh. Which is great. <laughs> which is such, a, is such a kick-ass quote. There's one really great review that I want to read because like a lot of the reviews are exactly what you imagine. Like, this is such a joke. She's terrible. Like, the audience was laughing at her. What a terrible joke to play on people. You know, but this one critic, I think, kind of captures it. And this is Robert Bagar from the New York World Telegram. And he wrote, Of all the singers appearing before the public today, only Madame Jenkins has perfected the art of giving added zest to a written phrase by improvising it in quarter tones, either above or below the original notes. So think of the difficulties involved in making this possible. (laughs) There is almost a difficulty in being so close to being near the notes, but so wrong at the same time. And I think he kind of captured that. (laughs) But he also says... She was exceedingly happy in her work. It is a pity that so few artists are and that the happiness was communicated as if by magic to her hearers. And that's one thing that nobody can deny is that she did not love music and so passionately pursue it. Truly. She really loved music in like the purest way possible. Yeah. And I'm going to not quote it directly, but there is a moment where... Her husband, Bayfield, confronts one of the reviewers. Actually, I believe it is the reviewer who who said that this was the worst joke ever perpetrated. Mm-hmm. It's in the movie, so it's fictionalized. But he basically says, like, this concert is for people who enjoy music, not for hecklers and jeerers like you. And I think that's maybe at the heart of what it is. Is like, this is just for people who love music in all its weird and fun forms. Yeah, I love it. You know, people say everything under the sun there is. People critique her in every way possible. And so something that, you know, is always brought up and part of the discussion around her music making is, you know, did she know she was bad or was she just oblivious? And, you know, I don't know if we'll ever really know, but, you know, many people were very quick to believe that she was totally clueless about her lack of skill. And so many people were so quick to shoot her down, you know, and it's kind of even funny because we have quotes from famous and very successful musicians, you know, kind of ragging on her. And one example is, um, you know, Marilyn Horn. And she's on record saying, you know, I would say that maybe she didn't know 
First of all, we can't hear ourselves as others hear us. We have to go by a series of sensations. We have to feel where it is. And Horn, who first heard Jenkins' records in her 20s, she's kind of a tease. And she says that if someone like her were to show up at a master class, I'd tell her to go home. Uh, and then Horn chuckles and then adds, no, I would kindly tell her that I think she ought to look somewhere else for her musical kicks, however she wanted them. Horn also goes on this like rant about how people are usually born with vocal talent uh, or they're not. And so, you know, you have a lot of quotes from people like this who are just like, yeah, it's a no go. I don't think she know she knew. I mean, it's so hard to say. It's yeah. But what I find fascinating is that a prominent voice teacher, Bill Schumann tells a totally different story. And he says, there's no way she could have not known. No one is that unaware, especially a person who has developed so much of her time and resources to helping young, really good singers. And one of those young singers that Jenkins actually supported was Louise Francis Bickford, who later became Schumann's teacher and steered him toward his current profession. And if you're not familiar with who Bill Schumann is, he's like trained and taught Met stars like he has like the record of people winning all sorts of awards like the Beverly Sills award like all this crazy stuff four years in a row his students were honored with the Richard Tucker award his students are going off and doing really great things he's one of the, like <laughs> those people that people are always trying to get to go do master classes and you know so he knew her pretty well and he said she loved the audience reaction and she loved singing but she knew and you know as a long-term syphilis patient you know Jenkins took regular doses of mercury and arsenic um, as Jesse said and you know he believes that it affected her hearing and more than likely she had tinnitus which would cause her a constant hum in her head which would prevent her from singing in tune yeah to be honest, part of me is inclined to believe that at the beginning she was in on the joke and then towards the end, maybe not so much because it's difficult for me to imagine like she was working as a piano teacher even for a while because she doesn't take on to singing until she's in her 40s. Right. So there's a big gap of time where she is working as a pianist and she's not a concert pianist, but she's playing piano and well enough to teach it. Well enough to make a living off of teaching it, which makes me think she isn't tone deaf. And even though we don't hear ourselves in the same way inside and outside her head, she had recordings of herself. She was also hearing herself outside of her head. I'm inclined to think that for a good portion of it, she was in on the joke. And she simply liked the Emperor's New Clothes situation where nobody was willing to say anything about it. Yeah, I'm actually kind of wondering if perhaps at the very beginning of her career, because she did have experience with piano, that maybe she was unaware and then probably very quickly realized that she was a better pianist than she was a singer and then just kind of went with it. Because even though I wouldn't say that she was like, I don't know, the type of ego that she has is very specific and she really just like didn't give a damn about what anybody said. So I would think that she would be in on the joke after a while, but I'm assuming that as, you know, her functions kind of started to deteriorate, it's debatable as to whether or not she knew or even cared anymore. Yeah. I think too, like, let's think about this. I'm just, I'm curious. When does her father die? Um, Her father dies when she's pretty young. So let me see. Her father dies in 1909 and she begins giving vocal recitals in 1912. But even then she's like, she's done some things before that in these popular music circles. I don't know. It's very, very difficult 
To me, what is interesting is that, you know, she's criticized for really struggling with the basic vocal skills. You know, obviously pitch was an issue, but further than that, like she really struggled with rhythm and phrasing. And to me, if she was good at piano, she should have a basic understanding of rhythm. So I would almost just say that those types of skills probably just deteriorated with her condition. Yeah. And probably, you know, by the time she's really singing by 44, she what had already had syphilis for like 20 years, right? Yeah. Maybe I'm I'm actually going to take back my statement. I think probably by the time she hits 44, that like maybe she is too far gone. In terms of like full on mental state, because I actually they don't know whether or not the nerve issues were also part of the reason she stopped being able to play the piano. So I wouldn't be surprised because she gets syphilis at like the age of 17 or like 18. Yeah, it might have been, um, you know, probable that she was perhaps more susceptible to an injury. So perhaps, you know, injury that wasn't worth much note caused a lot more damage because of the underlying condition and to say like a quick little bit of how syphilis would have like been affecting her. Okay, because. She she has it throughout her life, and syphilis, like I said, it, she was in tertiary syphilis. In the final stages of syphilis, it affects your brains, your nerves, your eyes, your ears. Like, when they say, like, she had tinnitus, and then on top of that, you've got all the things that arsenic and mercury will do to you, which are also not super kind to your organs. So it's entirely possible she was, she was to some degree, delusional. It's just kind of a fascinating needle to thread for her to be mentally competent enough to give a full recital at 76, but, like, at the same time may have been having like wildly crazy delusions and you know not really able to hear herself not really able to hear the music at all but that would explain a lot of how she was close to the right things but far enough away that it was weird but like if you listen to her you can recognize what she's trying to sing it's wild you know what i find very interesting though and i don't know maybe you have found this in your research but when i was reading about her i couldn't find anything about her having kind of delusions or, you know, maybe having some like awkward behavior when not singing. That's the thing is like, by all means, she was like, people talked about her as like very much understanding music from like a a comprehensive standpoint. Right. But it's just interesting to me because, you know, if we're if we're going to suppose that, you know, well, her music abilities were the way they were because of her condition, it's like, wouldn't you have wouldn't you expect her to also be a little wacky, <laughs> for lack of a better word, in like social settings? Like I couldn't find anything about her being an awkward person like it at these events or anything. Like as far as I've seen, like she was a total socialite and super with it. So it's just weird to me. And maybe you've seen something in your research, but I haven't seen anything that suggests that no. she was losing her faculties in non-music settings. Yeah, there's a, like a complicated thing where people were saying like, yeah, she knew how she affected audiences. But there was one historian who had said that like she really thought she was having the same effect that like Frank Sinatra was having on people. <laughs> like she yeah. thought their reactions were just like an overwhelming with emotion. Sure. Yeah, it's just a, it's very, very interesting. You know, there are many things at play within her story. And um, if you haven't heard her sing, perhaps her most notable 
recording is um, she really loved the Queen of the Nights aria, the Hula Raka. <laughs> and if you want to listen to her sing, that's definitely the one that I would suggest because that'll give you a, a really good understanding of what we're dealing with here. You know, it's so funny. I was at a record shop in Boston with my boyfriend like two, almost two years ago, and I found a record of her. I'll have to post it on our Instagram stories because I was so shook. But it was this little candy purple colored record and it had her in her little costume with the angel wings that I was talking about earlier and it was like you know the queen of the night aria was on there a bunch of other things that are very challenging like she never shied away from picking like the most strenuous music in opera canon and you know to this day it makes me so mad that I didn't buy it because I was going to and then we were just kind of (gasps) like nah whatever but oh I should have you I can't believe myself but you know to be honest I'm sure if I told my boyfriend to go back to that record shop you know it's probably still there (laughs) so you know maybe maybe there's hope for me yet yeah maybe it's still in there we can we can hope but i i have to say like the other thing about this that i guess kind of gets me we've talked about the fact that she rhythmically was all over the place and like no wise once again she was recognizably following the pattern of the notes to say the bare minimum Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were not the right notes, but the pattern is recognizable. But we have not in any way discussed the fact that she sang in a lot of languages she did not bother to learn. Mm-mm. The language is possibly the funniest part of it to me, personally. <laughs> That's why I would love to hear her sing in Russian. Because I feel like Russian is hard for me to grasp after weeks of pronunciation and diction and all that. No, I am useless at <sighs> oh. Russian. So I can't even imagine, but... Yeah, she was a a diction queen. <laughs> Let's just say that. She just let the words flow out of her, whatever it was. <laughs> it's really a shame we don't uh, have more of those recordings. And that people don't listen to more than just the Queen of the Night aria. Yeah. It really is something, though. But that, that's the thing. And I think that's another point in the category of she really didn't know. Because in, in many ways, like, the fact that she learned the music at all was kind of shocking. The fact that she had some kind of musical ability, at least enough to recognize certain things, but couldn't learn the languages, maybe would speak towards it. Yeah, that's a good point. But then again, that's also, to me, also could be reviewed as, like, she was in on the joke and she knew that not learning the languages would make it funnier. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, we'll probably never know. No. But, you know, all of that considered, you might be thinking, like, okay, so she was a bad musician all around. People went and supported her because they were laughing at her. She died of a pretty tragic cause. So, like, what is it that you guys are so in love with her for? And um, here's the reason. Florence Foster Jenkins may not teach us how to sing, but she leaves us with a very valuable lesson. Actually, many valuable lessons. I think at the heart of it, Florence Foster Jenkins totally embodies what being a musician really means, which is the love of your art. You know, whether she was in on the joke and the whole thing was just a farce, she didn't care. She took her lessons. She, um, you know, had this lifelong dream to pursue her career. And though it's definitely not the career that many people hope to have or, you know, many people, you know, get away with, she did it. And to some extent, you know, she got 60 grand from a sold out recital at Carnegie Hall at 76. How many people can say that they pursued their dream like that? Not many. There is something to be said about that audience that came just to laugh. Like there's such a 
a wild cruelty to that whole thing. But at the end of the day, like, what is showing up to laugh at somebody but just, like, the purest, worst form of, like, vanity and (laughs) self-indulgence? And she took their money anyway. So good for her. Yeah. Like I said, you have to remember, too, that, like, some of these critics who are throwing out these wildly cruel things to say about a woman that they almost certainly, like, knew was ill. Like, you don't, I imagine, hide syphilis entirely well. I don't think people didn't know, especially since she was constantly wearing wigs. Yeah, I mean, she was the queen of fake it till you make it. Like, she just didn't care. Absolutely. Yeah, but these people were also wildly cruel to people like Maria Callas. Like, they were tearing her apart on the Met stage at the same time. And it was funny because I was reading an article that was comparing the two, which is why I keep bringing it up. But they talked about how Maria Callas would listen to herself and said she hated the sound of her own voice. And so when you think about somebody like Florence Foster Jenkins, who listened to her own voice and was like, I am the best, there's something kind of amazing about that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she knew how to block out the haters. And I think that it's really attributed just to her pure love of music. She didn't care what it sounded like. She didn't care if people laughed. You know, she didn't care if she got all these critiques from these random writers. For all the talk about, like, she didn't know, her quote where she says, like, people can say I can't sing, but then they can never say I didn't sing, shows that, like, she knew to some degree what people were saying about her. Yeah. And to her, the point was to make music. And I think as, you know, modern musicians, especially like in school and then post-grad, we just get so, we get into this position where we just think the worst about our voice and our abilities. And so I think it's really refreshing to look at Florence Foster Jenkins and like, you know, odds are you're a hell of a lot better than she was. And so maybe be a little easier on yourself, you know? Maybe uh, think about why you make music and be a little bit nicer to yourself and your voice because odds are you're doing okay. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Success can look like so many different things. And like we said, most people aren't looking to create the kind of career that Florence Foster Jenkins had, except the reality is is Florence Foster Jenkins brought a lot of happiness and a lot of music to a lot of people who wouldn't have had it otherwise. And she captured their attention like very little else does or did. To the degree that she's still so popular, her story is still so famous even now. Like, she is that interesting of an entertainer, regardless of how it came about. And so I think that that is the kind of lesson, is like, success can come in just such a variety of forms. But also that being wildly wealthy definitely helps. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to ignore the fact that she also had... um, bunch of money and that definitely helps when people don't want to listen to you yeah i mean that's a good point she didn't even pursue her music career until you know after her father passed away and she inherited that sum of money so it is definitely something to take into consideration because you know if she hadn't had this wealth if she hadn't you know been able to use founded the verity club yeah her privilege of being able to get into these socialite clubs Nobody would have listened to her. You know what I mean? She would have just been a laughing stock and would have been just forgotten in history. She definitely wouldn't have been given the opportunity to sing at Carnegie Hall in her 70s. So, yeah, definitely take into consideration that much of her opportunity, uh, whatever it was, was, you know, provided for by her immense wealth. Truly, she followed the traditional singer's path by faking it till you make it and making it by relying on her parents' money. (laughs) (laughs) 
basically what a relatable queen (laughs) so happy birthday florence foster jenkins who once again the most notorious soprano of this or any time you gotta love her we should definitely do an opera watch party where we watch that new movie oh yeah so thank you guys so much for joining us it was very fun to get to talk about this very famous figure in music history um and next week we actually have another really exciting music history episode but i i'll i'll leave a little bit of mystery for that one if you have any ideas or fun stories or fun figures from music history that you'd like to share with us though please feel free to write to us you can get to us on facebook and twitter and instagram but instagram especially at opera offstage we're always excited to talk to you guys or you can get on our discord which you can get through our instagram bio and chat with us there it's where i'll be posting that 12 minute video of share i mentioned earlier (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to miss it so go and check those out come chat with us and we will see you guys next week bye bye